Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. And let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at what's hot in the world of science this week. Dave, what have you got for us first? Well, engineers have built the first flapless aircraft. Ever since the Wright brothers first took to the air, aircraft have been controlled by moving surfaces which deflect the air, and therefore the aircraft gets deflected in the other direction, you can control the plane. And in most cases, it's a well-tested um, technology, and it works well. But moving surfaces can be a ma- maintenance headache, they create lots of noise, and in military aircraft, they can ruin your carefully crafted, stealthy shape. Now, researchers from BAA Systems and Cranfield and Manchester Universities have flown the first aircraft without moving surfaces at all. Instead, they've been controlling it using something called the Coandra effect. This is the tendency of a stream of fluid to stick to a curved surface. In this case, fluid being air. Yep, air as a fluid. Um, And you've probably seen it if you've ever held a spoon up to a little stream of water from from a tap. The water tends to stick to the back of the spoon and it curves around and deflects the air. It's actually a lot of the reason why aeroplanes fly. At the point at which the the air detaches from the spoon or the curved surface is very, very sensitive to minor um, deviations. So what they've been doing is blowing air from the engine into that stream and altering the way, whether it stays attached for longer, in which case the air goes downwards, or um, becomes detached earlier, in which case the air goes higher than it would have done otherwise. So you're giving the plane a push using moving air rather than a moving part, but then surely there's got to be a moving part to make the engine ducked more air onto that surface, isn't there? So aren't you just moving the problem off of the wing and internally somewhere? But you're changing it from a very large moving part, which needs big servos and things to move. You actually need very little air to cause these deflections, so they can do it right in the heart of the aircraft where it's nice and protected. They can just make small deflections to it. And this is working, is it? And they've got it working. They've got a plane. I've seen a video of it. It's a bit kind of slightly kind of hyper. It looks like not entirely smooth control, but it works. It'll probably appear in military aircraft first, as most of these things do. Um, And probably, I don't know whether you'll ever see it in airliners, because many of the advantages aren't a big advantage for airliners. But there are related technologies to this which can reduce the noise of aircraft taking off and landing, and which might be much more practical than we might be seeing in the future. So the bottom line is you could scale this up to a jumbo. There's no reason why just these little test aircraft are going to be restricted to that sort of size. You could use this on a commercial scale. Yeah, the, the only big issue is that at the moment you need something to blow the air, and then that's another point of failure, which might be slightly worrying if you're building an airliner. Well, I guess it all comes down to testing. Uh, on the other hand, Diana... Well, actually, on the other hand, indeed, uh, researchers writing in the journal PNAS this week have come a little bit closer to understanding how the brain chooses which hand to use for any particular action. And they think it comes down to a sort of mental competition between the hands. Flavio Oliveira and his team from the US and Belgium collected together a group of right-handed people and instructed them to reach for images placed on a table. The participants could use either hand to pick the images up, and these images were in different places on the table. So while this was happening, the researchers applied transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, to the brains of the participants. Sounds scary, but uh, what it does is to temporarily disrupt brain activity in the subject's left or right posterior parietal cortex. And as the name suggests, it's at the back of the brain, and it's important for planning movements or thinking about 3D space around you. 
When TMS was applied to the left side, the right-handed participants tended not to use their right hands as much as they would normally. But applying TMS to the right side of the brain produced no change at all. And of course, the left side of the brain is usually involved in controlling the right side of the body and vice versa. So you might expect to see this in right-handed people. So what do they actually think is going on?、Um, Are we are we saying here that there's not just this bias to use one hand if you're right-handed or the other hand if you're left-handed? There is actually a, a section of the brain which is actively encoding which hand to use based on the task at hand. Excuse the pun. Yeah, well, the, the, the researchers think that what's actually going on is some kind of decision-making process in the brain where it's coming up with a series of、uh, sort of intentions of how to pick up this item, and then it decides on the best one. So it will probably decide on your right hand if you're right-handed. I guess another interesting spin-off of this will be to look at people who have strokes and brain injuries, because obviously, if you damage that area of the brain, what does this do to a person's ability to make that choice, and how does that affect their rehabilitation? Do they mention that at all in the paper? No, but、um, I think another thing that would be really interesting would be people who think they're left-handed, but because of you know various pressures of society, they've had to use their right hand for things, and it would be interesting to see if the same effect happened to them. Indeed, it would. Thank you, Diana. Well, also in the news this week,、uh, astronomers at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and also from the Carnegie Institution of Washington, have announced the discovery of an Earth-like planet, but it's outside our own solar system, and it's thought that liquid water, as well as an atmosphere, could exist on that planet's surface, which would make it potentially the first habitable. Exoplanet, and joining us from the University of California at Santa Cruz to tell us more about the discovery is one of the co-authors of the paper, Stephen Vogt. He is the professor of astronomy and astrophysics. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us on the Naked Scientists. The, the first question, I think, probably to kick off with is, where is this planet? This is in the constellation of Libra. It's about twenty、uh, light years away, so it's one of the nearest stars,、um, and it's、um, a pretty exciting star to be looking at. What's the name of the star? The star is called Gliese 581G.、Uh, that, that's after a, a catalog of nearby stars by a man named Gliese, basically. So it's number 581 in that catalog. And how did you actually spot the planet,、um, or planets? Because this isn't the first planet that's been spotted around that star. That's right.、Uh, a number of groups have been observing many of the nearby stars for many years.、Uh, the Swiss. Group from Geneva has already detected four planets around this system over the last four or five years, using about four years worth of data, and we've now found two more in the system. So, talk us through the experimental methods you use, because even though something is relatively close, twenty light years, it's still far enough away that conventional telescopes are going to find that tricky. So, how do you do the study? The study is done by measuring the velocity of the star. We take a spectrum of the star and measure the shifts, the Doppler shifts of the lines. Um, every night we get one data point, basically. So we have hundreds of nights of, of observations on there, and、uh, we're basically measuring how the planet tugs on the star. And this particular Earth-like planet tugs on the star at a level of about one meter a second. So it makes the star sort of stroll back and forth with a period of about 37 days. So because the planets in orbit are making the host star wobble a bit, you can pick up that wobble. Because it makes the light, which is coming to us from that star, get a bit stretched out or shrunk a bit, and we can pick that up. That tells you that there's something pulling on the star. But how do you resolve individual planets? Because as you've already mentioned, there are a number of planets going around that star. That's right. There's six of them now. So each one pulls with its own period, and these are strictly periodic Keplerian、uh, motions. 
and we fit these out using very sophisticated computer programs, and we strip them out one at a time. Uh, with each new planet, once we remove it from the system, then we look at the residuals and, and look for periodos- periodicity in the residuals, and we work our way down through the system one at a time. So the the, the overall dance that is done with six planets is quite complex, but we have mathematical techniques to follow that. So presumably you have worked out the only possible solution to all these different wobbles is if you've got a planet which you say is Earth-like. It's in what's called the habitable zone around that star. So what can you tell about that planet? Well, what we know about it is that we know its mass. We know uh, we have a lower and an upper limit to its mass. It's about three to four times as massive as the Earth. Um, we know what it's made out of. If it was made out of styrofoam or marshmallow cream, it would be one temperature and one, one size. Uh, we know it's made out of the sort of stuff that planets are made out of, uh, mostly iron and, and silicates, things like that. So we have a pretty good estimate of what its radius would be from very detailed models. And that turns out to be about 20 to 50% bigger than the Earth and spherical. It would be a spherical ball. It wouldn't look like a donut or something like that. So now we know it's gravity, basically. We know it's surface gravity, and we know how effectively it can hold on to its atmosphere. And it turns out to have about an Earth gravity, maybe a little bit more. So if you stood on a scale on the surface of that planet, you wouldn't be too shocked. Your weight would be about the same as you weigh on the Earth. A relief for many people. Um, what about the conditions on the planet? Can you infer anything about what it would be like if you were to go there? Yes, actually, the, uh, we know a fair amount about that. We know that the planet is tightly locked to its star, so it keeps one face towards its star all the time, just the same way that the moon keeps its same face towards the Earth all the time. And that would mean that it would have a hot side and a cold side and then a whole bunch of temperatures, a range of temperatures in between. So the area between the bright and the, and the darkness, what we call the terminator, would be the most comfortable. And much of that would be shirt-sleeve weather. You could just stand outside and there'd be mild winds, mild breezes. But it would be temperatures of, of basically about 20 to, uh, to 40 degrees Celsius. It would be quite cool, uh, quite nice. And... Um, it, presuming that it had an atmosphere, um, there would be probably liquid water on the surface, either in, in vast quantities or in small quantities. So it would be quite a, a pleasant place to be. Which is encouraging. And just to finish off, given that you found this relatively hospitable-sounding place relatively easily, what does this tell us about the prospects of finding more like it elsewhere in the Milky Way? Because our own galaxy's got, what, 200 billion stars in it? Yes. Yeah, and that, and that to me, that's one of the most interesting things of this discovery is that we it occurred too too quickly and too nearby. We we shouldn't have found it that soon, and that means one of two things: either we've been really lucky and we won't find another one again for a long, long time, or there's a lot of them out there. And I prefer the second uh, hypothesis that there are a lot of them out there. And if you work out the statistics of the numbers from our incompleteness of our surveys you find that probably 10 to 20% of stars have planets like this, and that means tens of billions of these places in, in our own galaxy. Uh, and that's quite exciting. It certainly is an intriguing thought. Thank you very much, Stephen, for joining us. Uh, Stephen Vogt from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Dave. Now, scientists have demonstrated a new way of improving the efficiency of solar cells. At the moment, solar power is significantly more expensive than fossil fuels, and there's tens of thousands of researchers trying to reverse this um, relationship. However, this isn't really just a case of making the solar cells themselves cheaper because even now in the Western world, half of the cost of installing solar panels is in the installation. So the best way of making electricity cheaper is to get more electricity per square metre of panels. 
The problem is that different colours of light have different energies and light split up into little tiny particles called photons and each photon in a normal cell can only produce one electron. And the solar cell is designed around a single energy called the band gap. This means it can't absorb light with a low energy than this. Any extra energy a light photon might have is wasted as heat. So does that mean then, sorry to cut in Dave, does that mean then that if you optimise your panel to say see green light anything that's at the red or the blue is much harder to get the energy out because the panel isn't optimised around that particular wavelength of light. That's right. You wouldn't be able to absorb the red at all and the blue light, um, any extra energy the photon had above the green, it wouldn't be able to absorb at all. So they tend to probably build them uh, optimised somewhere around the yellow in the spectrum, um, which means you're wasting lots of infrared and lots of energy from the blue. Now, one solution to this problem would you find a material that would push two electrons around the circuit if the energy of the photon was twice the band gap. Um, this would mean that you could make the band gap a lower energy so you could absorb more colours of photons in the first place and the really high energy photons you'd get twice the energy out of, twice the many electrons out of. This effect has been observed in solid lumps of semiconductor but is very inefficient and you need three or four times the energy um, to produce two electrons. Now Justin Sambar and colleagues have been investigating this property in quantum dots. These are tiny lumps of material, in this case lead sulphide, which are so small that their energy levels start to look more like an atom than a bulk material. But they're an atom whose properties you can engineer. They built structures of these um, lead sulphide nanodots attached to titanium dioxide semiconductors. And although um, these absorb a tiny proportion of the light hitting them at the moment, because they're incredibly thin, when they do absorb them, um, when they increase the energy of the photons to be more than twice the band gap, they almost see a doubling in the current produced. So they're producing multiple electrons per photon. Although it's really not a practical cell at the moment, um, hopefully in a few years' time they'll be able to get this into practical cells and get a much higher efficiency out. And the theoretical efficiency, if you could do this, would be? Um, I think it's sort of in the 60%. Which is incredible, isn't yeah. it? Much better. I mean, probably you wouldn't get yeah. there, but certainly you get a lot closer. We're talking of light. Uh, there's also an interesting paper out this week which uses a trick of the light to potentially give people who are trafficking in illegal drugs a run for their money. Um, it's by a researcher called Tasneem Munshi, who's a researcher at the University of Bradford. And she's got a paper, it's published in the journal Drug Testing and Analysis this week. And what they've done is to use the technique Raman spectroscopy in order to spot when someone has dissolved cocaine inside rum. Because what drug traffickers are now doing to avoid sending packages of things which are easy for customs officers to spot and easy for them to analyse, they've taken to dissolving things like cocaine at very high concentrations inside things like drinks. And this means that the customs officers would potentially have to open a suspect bottle, therefore destroying it in the course of opening it to test it if they were suspicious about it. And that could mean that a number of completely harmless cargoes could end up being compromised, which makes the customs person's job very difficult. What this group have discovered is that if you shine laser light, and they've actually taken two frequencies, they've used green light and also a longer wavelength of light, because people are often using green bottles to put their RAM into, and one of the frequencies they chose was green. What they find is that if you've got very low levels, 6 to 8% of cocaine dissolved in the drink, they can see this blip coming up on the graph, because when any substance interacts with the light of a certain wavelength, the 
substance and the things dissolved in it and surfaces, bits of paper, everything does this, you get this unique scatter pattern of the light coming back, which is called the Raman spectrum, which is almost like a fingerprint specific to that particular substance, so you can tell what's there. And they've found that they can detect even very low concentrations of cocaine dissolved in rum, in glass bottles, coloured glass bottles, and even in plastic bottles. And they even went as far as to test, rather than just ethanol, they actually tested some brand names, Lambs, Navy Run, Bacardi, and also Captain Morgan. They all worked. And uh, the point is, they tested 6 to 8% solutions of cocaine. Uh, the people who are doing this illicitly are actually shipping bottles of, of uh, rum containing 60% dissolved cocaine by weight. So there should be no problem with picking this up, and it means that you don't have to compromise the cargo if there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, which I think is a, a wonderful breakthrough. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.